In this lecture on political economy, we will examine some of the ways in which human groups have organized themselves to achieve collective goals and the procedures that they have created to resolve conflict within and between societies. We will first look at a variety of different perspectives on how social life is organized. We will look at the concepts of politics and of stratification and conflict resolution. I'll briefly point to the important antecedents in the political world of social organization and political process. We're not unique in creating alliances and using the power of our position to achieve our goals. We'll then look at the levels of political organization based upon Service's classic notion of levels of sociocultural evolution. We will look at the band organization under egalitarian structures, the tribal structures and how rank stratification organizes society. And then we'll look at chiefdoms and the emergence of classes and address the questions of why stratification? Why are there differences among humans in society that persist across generations? And we'll address the emergence of the modern state system and ask why did states emerge? Why were they adapted? And we'll look at stratification in modern societies. Why do we have classes? What effects do they have? And in particular, ask questions about why sexual stratification? Why is the modern world associated with stark inequalities between men and women? And we'll wrap up with some speculations on what may come to follow the state system. What is the next stage of humanity's social evolution? Social structure is concerned with the organization of groups and group behavior. Why do people behave in predictable ways? Why do societies create organizational structures to control people's behavior? Well, our tendency to have group organizations has a significant baseline in mammalian behaviors. When we look at how mammals behave, they organize themselves in groups. For instance, in many ground-dwelling primates, the basic structure of society involves males that literally surround the group with women and children in the middle and men at the periphery to protect against predators. Uh, we also find within primate groups the importance of status and ranking. People have position in our societies. Animals have positions in theirs. And it's not just a function of your strength. The uh, juvenile daughter of an alpha female may be able to go take food away from an adult male, and the adult male won't resist because he sees mom, mom's sister, mom's three daughters all standing there with two of her sons. He can pretty quickly figure out that this is not going to be a fight he wins. So even in the animal world, we have positions and status that come from our relationships with other people. In human societies, of course, the organization is far more complex, and it's not the tooth that enforces laws. In human societies, we have both normative expectations, general standards regarding how people should behave, as well as laws that are enforced through a political or judicial system. So while all societies have norms, only more complex societies have laws or written rules. In all societies, we find the use of influence to achieve goals, to resolve conflicts, and to manage differences between people. However, as societies become more complex, formal organizations are created. However, as we will see when we examine 
the levels of sociocultural evolution that even in the context of human societies, kinship has been the most important principle of political organization for most of humanity. And these principles, however, break down in intergroup relations. And so warfares, alliances, and mediation become more important principles of intergroup organization than does kinship. Political organization for organizing and coordinating human behavior is found in all social groups. And in all social groups, we find that certain principles such as influence, the ability to affect others' behavior, but not force them to do things, is part of what exists in all cultures. However, only in more complex societies do we find the use of power, resource control, the ability to force people to do things as an important principle. In most cultures, humans have depended more upon some degree of development of consensus rather than the use of power. And we find in these complex societies the presence of authority, a formal position or office that gives people certain rights over others. However, at most levels of socio-political organization, we don't find power and authority to be significant features. So we will look at these concepts from the perspectives of sociocultural evolution of political organizations. Elman's service suggested that there were four major levels or forms of political integration. Bands, tribes, and chiefdoms, all based on kinship and states based on classes. We'll also see that the chiefdoms have concepts of power and authority as well as class systems, a transitional form in the emergence of the modern state system. So why is politics important? Well, when we look at the differences in levels of political organization, we'll see that there are different kinds of potentials that emerge from different subsistence economies. People with lots of resources are able to produce more complex political structures. It's a natural kind of evolution. And these more complex structures uh, demand and create a greater degree of centralization of power. A person who can say, the buck stops here and I make all the decisions. And this organization of power often provides the most important structure of the group's political decision-making process. Of course, we also see in these more complex societies the emergence of classes, the stratification systems that we'll describe next. And these provide important divisions of resources in society that contribute to the power of a class system. But in general, we can say that politics is adaptive because it creates an organization, an administrative hierarchy, and a distribution of power that facilitates decision-making, the coordination of the group for complex, coordinated behaviors, and allows for the scale of operations at larger levels. If we depend upon kinship to organize our societies, there's a limit to which we can basically use kinship relationships to organize ourselves. We don't even know all of our kin in modern societies. We'll see that while kinship can create complex political structures, it really has to do with the emergence of a class system that creates the most complex political organizations that humans have seen to date. And these systems are based on the concept of stratification, the division of a given society or culture into distinct social groups that have different access to resources, different access to power, different advantages in life. So we'll see that resources and wealth 
and power and coercion are not significant features of small-scale societies. Rather, prestige and honor become important organizational principles. But with the allocation of resources and power through a stratification system, particularly stratification systems based on ascription, a position given by virtue of birth, we have systems emerge in which there are substantial differences among people in society, and these differences play a significant role in the allocation of power. We start with systems that really have little or no stratification beyond that attributed by sex or gender and individual achievement. But in rank level societies, we'll see that prestige and honor that comes from one's position in a kinship system becomes a significant feature for the organization of a society. So the head of a lineage or kinship group is the head of the local village as well. And we'll see with class systems, the allocation of resources, power, and prestige is not only the source of power, but the source of the continuity of power, an intergenerational transfer of wealth from parents to their offspring that creates permanent divisions within society. Later, we'll look at some questions about why stratification. Why do these different systems of resource allocation exist? And we'll see that in the modern world system, allocation based upon inheritance is one of the major sources of power and that the control of resources is also a major source of power. For instance, do you have to be a millionaire to be a member of the U.S. Senate? Most of them are. Does that have anything to do with their access to power and their ability to hold those positions term after term? We'll first look at the different levels of socio-political organization beginning with bands. Bands are these small nomadic hunter-gatherer groups that are in essence politically autonomous. The band is basically a bilateral family system. The people living there are in essence typically related either through marriage or through descent. There's no real formal organization in a band. It's basically a bunch of lineages that live together. An authority may be exercised within the family system, but there's no overarching system that organizes people's political activities. Rather, like in economics, where the family is the basic unit of production, the family is the basic unit of organization and decision-making. They're simple technologies, and their hunter-gatherer lifestyle that's extremely nomadic means that there's limited accumulation of wealth. There is some kind of leadership in the band. Often there is a headman, but the headman is someone who is known as a good talker, a good listener, an intelligent person who understands others and who through personal charisma is able to give good guidance for the group. The duration of a person as a informal headman is only really as long as they are competent and people believe in them. They don't have power to force people to do things. There's no permanent uh, position. Rather, if people like what somebody says, they follow their example. If someone's influential, they may take their advice. But if they start making mistakes or if you don't like their plan, you don't have to go along. It's not like in a modern society where a political leader can dictate what others will do. How do people achieve conformity? How do they resolve conflicts? Well, in essence, 
There are a variety of mechanisms that begin with social pressure and norms. Uh, you don't have to go out and hunt if you're a man, and you may still get meat given to you. But people will start to ask questions about whether you're really a woman and not a man since you're not hunting. So ridicule is a fundamental way of getting people to conform. Bans may ultimately shun and banish people for serious transgressions. And this is one of their more powerful mechanisms in addition to killing people who basically cause them too much grief. But for a variety of reasons, that's not typical either. But even a person who is banished from one band can find relatives in another and go join them. At the band level, religious leadership is also an important part of obtaining conformity. And the beliefs about the supernatural world are often held up as sanctions, that people will be punished if they don't do what the spirits want, if they continue to transgress in certain ways. So conflict resolution is normally through negotiation, informal pressure. And ultimately, if people cannot work things out, the band may fission, or people may just avoid one another, uh, even going and joining another band. Communities may come together to negotiate about problems, and there's always the possibility that if they can't mediate a conflict, that violence may be the outcome. So a man may, for instance, constantly complain about coming back to camp and finding some young man hanging around and talking to his wife. And he may tell him, you know, if I come back here one more time and find you anywhere near my wife, I'm going to beat the living daylights out of you. And the young man may be cowered into submission, or he may laugh in the person's face and say, yeah, well, you do that, you know my big brothers are going to come and beat you within an inch of your life. So threats, violence, intimidation, and sort of a balance of terror can also be control mechanisms in hunter-gatherer societies. And shamans may play an important role in conflict resolution. Often they may do so by pointing out that a person is a witch, accuse them of using supernatural power. And the possibility that someone will be accused of a witch can be an important control mechanism. For instance, shamans do communal healing ceremonies to help people who are ill from some problem. And everybody's expected to be there. If you don't come to help with the healing, you might be accused of being the witch that caused the illness. So conformity is often produced through supernatural sanctions in addition to the potential physical threats. In terms of stratification in bands, they tend to be egalitarian. There's no groups that have access to special power or prestige or resources. Everybody basically starts off equal, except for maybe being male versus female. However, in most bands, women are respected. Their roles are valued. Their contributions to societies are generally considered to be important. They are often the most important source of food. Um, so women are also respected, and we don't find strong sexual stratification in most hunter-gatherer groups, exceptions being those where women don't have a major role in production. In hunter-gatherer societies, men may be great hunters, women may be great mothers, great weavers, great basket makers, great pottery makers, and they'll be respected for that and get prestige. But that's something that they achieve rather than have a scribe. Your dad may be a great hunter, but no one's going to cut you any slack on that. 
they're not going to respect you unless you too achieve the status of a great hunter. So there's general resource equality derived from the principles of generalized reciprocity and the nomadic lifestyle that really make it difficult to accumulate much in terms of material goods. Anything that you have, you have to use before you pick up and move to the next site. So in hunter-gatherer societies, we find the predominance of a band structure in which there's general equality and really no formal political structures for organizing the group. In tribal societies, we find the emergence of more complex principles of organization based on kinship. To begin with, the tribe is a loosely used term, and many anthropologists have criticized it, suggesting that it's more of an invention rather than something that reflects an intrinsic organizational principle in social life. It may be applied to villages, to large kinship groups, or even entire language groups. But in general, what we find characteristic of a tribe is that it's not a politically integrated group in terms of its largest levels of membership. And for in a moment, we'll see why. These tend to be societies whose subsistence is based upon horticulture or in some cases, pastoral societies. This surplus provides the basis for a more sedentary village life and higher population densities that may produce a number of related villages living within a region. These different groups will be related through principles of descent and kinship. In general, tribes are based on the principle of people descended from a common ancestor. However, as we talked about in the context of the clan, this is normally an unknown common ancestor. So people have the idea that they're all related because they're descended from somebody who was the leader many generations in the past. What we find in tribal structures is that they are predominantly patrilineal. Small surprise since most societies in the world are organized on patrilineal basis. We, however, note that most matrilineal societies are found at the tribal level. So these are societies in which kinship principles based upon matrilineal descent have provided the organizational structure for the local society. Tribal organization of political power is based upon the concept of the segmentary lineage system, which is to say that there is a hierarchy of lineages that are all derived from a common but unknown, hence mythical, ancestor. People don't know who great-great-great-great-grandfather was, the great bear who founded our bear clan, but they all know that they are related to him. Within this tribal organization, one derives power from one's kinship position. The first descendant of the founder is considered to be the next leader, and his son will be the next leader, and his son, and so on and so forth. Of course, the second son of the original leader also has power and prestige relative to the third son and the fourth son, and his descendants are supposed to have some relatively greater prestige relative to the descendants of second and third brother. However, what we see in this context is a system in which shifts can occur across generations in terms of the number of descendants and their relative resource power in society. And this ultimately produces some problems for tribal-based organization. 
In essence, in tribes, there is no specialized political role. The person who is the village head is a person who is at the apex, the top of the most important lineage in the group. And so he doesn't have an inherent political position, but rather is recognized as the leader by virtue of his position within the lineage and the relative position of that lineage within the clan. Consequently, while this person has the power to control perhaps their own children, and it becomes increasingly difficult when they become adults, and while he may be able to influence his younger brothers when they become adults, it's not a coercive power. He can't literally force people to do things. So he has to lead by example, uh, lead by being a good model, uh, by persuading his kin to follow certain patterns of behavior that he thinks is best for the group. They may or may not agree with him. Inherent within the tribal political organization is a descent-based principle that is referred to as a segmentary lineage system. The idea is that the original founder had a number of children. Each one of these created a lineage, and each one of these lineages has the potential to split off and become its own separate group, ultimately form its own clan. However, as long as the different lineages can get along with each other, they continue to live together and accept the nominal leadership authority of the head of the first lineage. However, there may be a variety of principles that act against this. The segmentary lineage system is a system that functions in terms of complementary opposition and alliance, which is to say, if people in one lineage have conflicts with people in another lineage, everybody in one lineage will unite against the other. So, for instance, here we have a hypothetical lineage slash tribal organization. And I've only put the men on reflecting a patrilineal system in which women either are born into the system but leave and therefore have no role as adults, or they may marry in and are from other lineages and are not considered part of the political structure. So let's presume that the people over on the left, the orange people, were the son or descendants of the first son of the founder. If they have a problem with someone in this other lineage, the purple lineage, the oranges and the purples will unite and have conflict with each other. However, if someone in the orange lineage has a conflict with someone in the green lineage, well, the oranges and the purples will unite against the green. And of course, the green may get the blues to unite with them. If we presume in this system that the people shown in orange are descendants of the eldest son of the founder, then one of these people in orange is going to be the leader of the group. Of course, the top two are probably dead by the time that we have all of these people at the lower level barn. So we end up with a system in which we have a variety of different lineages who all descended from the same person, but may no longer have the same relative power. In this system, if we presume that the blue people were sons of the second son of the founder and children of his son's second son, we can see that in one sense, the blues are the low people on the totem pole, the low status lineage in society. But in this model, they have more descendants than the oranges, and they may have more relative power in comparison to them in terms of 
being able to produce, create, for instance, big men through feasting systems. So ultimately, the blues may no longer want to accept the authority of the oranges. And once it comes down to a question of the number of people, the prestige through feasting, or the ability to move somewhere else, the blues may ultimately exercise more power relatively in society. One of these orange guys may be the recognized leader of the tribe, but the blue people may say, you know, if you don't respect us, if you don't, you know, help us do this or that or other thing, we will leave. We'll move somewhere else. And what are you going to be, a situation are you going to be in if you get attacked and everybody who's descended from the second son has left your village? So tribal organizations work relatively well if they have a common threat. Everybody pulls together. But if they have disputes within the system, then they're likely to splinter or segment and have to break up. And we will see this in the video that you'll watch on the axe fight. So how do tribes create integration beyond the limits of kinship? Well, the big man that we discussed in the economic systems is one of those mechanisms for creating regional influence. It's based not only on the person's personality, but on their ability to create alliances through feasting systems that integrate a number of different villages into a prestige system. These systems create not only literal indebtedness through gift giving, but also can create social and political indebtedness through the political systems that they create on the basis of personal alliances with others. So a big man may face a problem. One of his grandsons killed somebody in another tribe. And now he knows that tribe is going to be out for revenge, blood vengeance. Who are they going to kill? Well, they'll try to kill the guy who did the killing in the first place, but they know perfectly well that he's going to be a tough guy to kill, so they'll pick somebody else in his kinship group. The big man may fear that it could be his nieces or nephews or his favorite grandson that gets killed. So he doesn't want this to happen. He wants to negotiate a settlement pay blood money. How's he going to do this if he knows that people in the other village are gunning for his kin? Well, because of his prestige, he will probably be able to go to that other village and no one's going to mess with him even though they hate his grandson because he's a big man. He's got power. He's got allies. He's got respect. He's got prestige. And the local headman is indebted to him because he received a lot of gifts in the last big feast that this person threw. So, He's able to go there, and people will respect him, listen to him, and likely work out some kind of arrangement to pay compensation for his grandson's homicide. So tribal integration is weak. It's based upon personal alliances rather than a permanent system of patronage or power or authority. So when this big man dies, there's no one that can automatically take his place and have the same authority with respect to others. Cultures also may have big women. Women also may develop alliances through feasting, through redistribution, or through trading partners. We primarily find this phenomena in societies that have matrilineal systems of production where women acquire resources and can control these resources in terms of other groups in society, particularly their male kin. So they get to have some degree of power because of the ability to control material resources. So conflict in tribal society 
is very similar to the dynamics of conflict in banned societies. However, in tribal societies, we find an increase in kinship-based conflicts. The segmentary lineage system principle applies, and people of different lineages may square off against one another in a pattern of feuding, long-term violence, and retribution between different kin groups based on the notion that somebody in your group did me wrong, so we're going to take revenge on someone in your group, a kind of an eye-for-an-eye mentality that may bring large segments of a village into conflict with one another, as is exemplified in the film on the axe fight. There are a variety of ways of creating pan-tribal organizations, but in general, the limits of the tribal structure are met by the ability to enforce decisions only within one's own lineage. A father can prevail on his sons and grandsons to do something, but in general has no power over his brothers, uh, nephews, cousins, etc. One way in which pan-tribal organizations are created are through age sets or age grades, where a group of men become solidified as a unit in society because they went through initiation together. So everybody that went through initiation at one period of time may end up living together in a men's house and they come into power together. They're friends, lifelong, comrades, and they have common interests. So if a age set that's now the elders in society agrees on something, they can try to enforce it down through their kinship networks, father to son to grandson, etc. But they only can enforce this individually within their own lineages. And if one of the members of the age set doesn't agree, well, they're not able to force him to try to coerce his kin to do something. So sodalities, these councils of elders based upon a specific age set, can become important mechanisms for conflict resolution. They have a common interest as a cohort that went through life together, and they may ultimately be able to resolve problems in order to keep their village from splintering. In some cases, warrior associations play an important role in tribal organizations. However, they generally have a limited scope of authority. They may have authority with respect to uh, planning hunting parties, or with respect to war and raids, or perhaps with respect to certain kinds of social violations, such as a murder. But they don't have a general authority in society, and often the warrior associations may be more the problem than the solution to the kinds of conflicts that engender tribal societies. In some cases, there is a special person, a leopard-skinned chief, as he's called in some societies in Africa, who is known as a negotiator, a mediator. He does not have power or authority over others, but he has a prestigious office, and others may be inclined to listen to him, in part because he is often a religious figure, someone who is believed to have the power to curse other people if he dislikes what they do. So he may be able to invoke supernatural sanctions to get people to come to the bargaining table. In general, when we look at tribal societies, they have relatively limited stratification. We find the persistence of egalitarian principles among tribal societies uh, in that there is no real resource difference. Everybody is still a producer. However, in tribal societies, we find the emergence of rank stratification, 
where relative prestige across different lineages provides an important source of power in society, particularly if people are able to translate that prestige into more wives and more children and more grandchildren, and in essence, more descendants and more power. However, there is a limitation to that system, and people may no longer respect it if somebody else has more descendants in the current generation. However, there's generally equal economic opportunity and the ability to engage in informal influence. Anybody can go talk to the headman. After all, he's related to them as a, a father, an uncle, a grandfather, a great-grandfather, whatever. So this influence system keeps the headman from becoming too important in society. He has to do the same kind of work as everybody else, and even if he's able to convince his kin to produce a lot of wealth, that's typically given away in a great feast that gives him perhaps a lot of prestige, but doesn't allow him to really exert resource control and use that as a source of power. However, eventually these rank stratification systems emerge into more permanent differences in society. The presence of distinct groups with different access to resources, power, and prestige. There is substantial evidence of this at least 7,500 years ago and probably as long as 14 to 15,000 years ago prior to the Neolithic Revolution that gave rise to agricultural societies. We know that differences existed in these societies because some people are buried with literally hundreds of pounds of prestige goods, uh, mica and precious metals and all kinds of elaborate, ornate uh, jewelry, um, wealth that is far in excess of what any individual could have directly acquired by their own efforts. And in the same societies, other people are buried with a few tools and a basket of goods. So obviously some people were more important than others. And we know that these differences were not just because of achievement, because we'll find the burial of children who couldn't have achieved this on their own with the same lavish burial goods that are associated with powerful and important leaders. So what we find associated with this stratification is the presence of massive architectural structures and other evidence of enormous feasts. And these feasts were linked not only to religious practices, but also to a variety of lineage enhancement activities that lead anthropologists to conclude that what we find deep in prehistory is the formation of ancestor cults that provided not only the basis for new forms of religious practice, but solidified stratification and society. What we find approximately 14,000 years ago is the emergence of complex religious structures among complex hunter-gatherer groups. Typically, hunter-gatherers are groups that maintain a nomadic lifestyle and have very little accumulation of goods. However, some hunter-gatherer groups were able to develop a sedentary lifestyle because they settled down in areas that had tremendously rich resources. For instance, some of the uh, groups in Southern California, uh, the Chumash, managed to create very powerful tribal and chiefdom-like structures, even though they were hunter-gatherers, 
because there was such an abundance of food resources that they didn't need to move around. They could stay in one place. What these kinds of groups apparently created deep in prehistory was an integration of animal and ancestor fertility cults, where animals were early on worshipped as deities. But what we know from ethnographic analogy is that these animal worship cults weren't worshipping animals per se, they were worshipping clans, and that ultimately these animals are representations of the clan system, that they're worshipping the ancestors. And what we find associated with these practices are lavish burials, extensive wealth in society, and evidence of the roots of stratification systems in religious-based lineage organizations. What these elaborate public feastings were concerned with was the use of the feasting system to create alliances and the use of megalithic architecture, big temples, pyramids, and other kinds of structures as centers not only for the storage of food but for trade and ultimately for the production of prestige goods and for housing political administrative systems. So these pre-agricultural societies engaged in food storage and used this food storage as a basis for creating systems of exchange that included exchange of prestige items that recognized one's membership in a specific group of people. So for instance, bone carvings, stone carvings, and elaborate jewelry become standardized in ways that serve as identifiers of people as members of certain groups and allow these different lineage systems to engage in competition on a regional scale. This regional competition of trade networks was really an effort to create alliances and to hold allies together in mutual systems of political action that not only enabled them to be more effective politically, but also enabled them to control resources and ultimately to enhance their own reproductive success. So why do these systems of stratification emerge? Well, we know that there are certain necessary conditions. While there are a few pre-Neolithic uh, stratification systems, um, most of the stratified societies were agricultural. However, the pre-Neolithic, pre-agricultural stratified societies illustrate that it's not just the, or it's not agriculture that is absolutely necessary, but the accumulation of some kind of surplus. So when we do get agricultural societies, this facilitates fixed agricultural uh, settlements and the accumulation of even more surplus. But it's the accumulation of surplus rather than agriculture per se that provides the basis for the political developments. It has been speculated that the accumulation of agricultural surplus necessitated the development of more complex political structures. In essence, once you have surplus, political structures will either be created to protect that surplus, or somebody else will use their political structures, their alliances, to come and take your surplus, and perhaps turn you into a permanent subjugated population that produces a surplus for them. 
Whatever the case, once we have permanent agricultural settlements, stratification has become a permanent feature of society, which is to say that power is passed on from one generation to the next in a father-son uh, perpetuation of political advantage. The functional explanation suggests that this was an adaptive response to leadership needs, that societies needed leaders, and people who were better leaders became permanently ensconced in these leadership positions. Conflict explanations emphasize the importance of inheritance of resources, which is to say that power becomes a permanent feature of society because people pass on power to their descendants. The presence of ancestor cults in pre-agricultural stratified societies reinforce this conflict explanation, which is to say that there was early class formation derived from the relative power of one lineage and their ancestors, the gods, vis-a-vis -vis other lineages. So that in essence, it was a religiously reinforced kinship system that became the basis for stratification in society. And once your ancestors are the gods of society, it's a short step to making them the gods of everybody that you come to dominate and conquer. Reinforcing stratification within the social group, reinforcing differences among people. This conflict explanation also contributes to the notion that stratification may have a biosocial basis, which is to say the relative reproductive success of one group vis-a-vis -vis others. Once your kin, your ancestors are the gods, this may put you in a position of attracting more followers and in particular giving you the resources to acquire more wives, as is the case in societies that practice polygyny. And more wives mean more descendants, mean more power in the subsequent generations. So we will see that these principles of kinship organization and relationship to religious power become the principles for organization of more complex societies where a single kinship group comes to assert power in society, as is the case in chiefdoms.